You're listening to The Semi-Failed Writer. This is a show about my life experiences, my love for entertainment, and of course, my failures. Merry New Year! Happy New Year. In this country, we say Happy New Year. <laughs> Thank you for correcting my English with stinks. I am Nanja Ibuko, exchange student from Cameroon. Ha 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 Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Welcome to 2021. I'm not going to waste much time. We're going to get directly into the film review. Today, we're going to be talking about the 1983 comedy classic, which is Trading Places. And you know, I need to make a list of my favorite films of all time because I keep talking about the films that I've talked about in the show and how they're all my favorite. Ghost is one of my favorites. Talk to Her is one of my favorites. And Trading Places is for sure one of my favorite films of all time. And there's a few reasons why that is. One, it's sort of quotable. You don't think of this as a quotable film, but my brother and I will at least once a year share some quotes. We know exactly what we're talking about when we bring up Merry New Year or something else. Number two, Eddie Murphy is just fantastic in this film. He's so electric and very entertaining and it's easy to really like this guy in this film. And the third reason why I love it, it's so satisfying to see rich people go broke. I don't have to say anything more. Let's just go right into the summary. Trading Places is about two men in Philadelphia with completely different socioeconomic backgrounds. Louis Winthorpe III is a commodities director on the path to take over the company he works for. Billy Ray Valentine is a street hustler with no home, no family, no real future. Their lives get pushed into completely different directions when brothers Randolph and Mortimer Duke make a wager to see if nature or nurture will win out. The wager? One dollar. The Dukes fire Lewis and frame him for a number of illicit crimes. All of his cash and assets are frozen, leaving him broke and ostracized by high society. Billy Ray is hired to replace Lewis and proves himself to be a natural in the position. The Dukes take enjoyment in seeing their experiment play out. But the only thing that would ruin their fun is if Lewis and Billy Ray find out the truth. Trading Places was released in 1983, written by Timothy Harris and Herschel Weingrod, and directed by John Landis. The film stars Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis, Ralph Bellamy, and Don Amici. Also known as... Let's talk about all the stars here. First of all, Dan Aykroyd. I think we gotta go way back to the 70s and 80s to identify his most memorable roles. You have Ghostbusters, where he plays Dr. Raymond Stance, and then you also have the Blues Brothers, where he's one half of the group and he's Elwood Blues. Eddie Murphy, he's an interesting one. You can pick out, like, one of his most iconic roles. It's either Axel Foley in the Beverly Hills Cop franchise or Donkey from the Shrek series. I mean, you could do that, but we have to acknowledge that this is one of the comedic greats. Maybe you remember him best from all his sketches that he did at Saturday Night Live. He did the Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood, I believe that was. He was Gumby, damn it. 
you could even go further back to when he did his stand-up. Like, you're not going to be wrong to pick out one certain thing he did because we can all acknowledge that he is one of the greats in comedy. Jamie Lee Curtis. I would say you go with the Halloween series. That's how she got her start, playing Laurie Strode, and that has led her into the career she has now. Now, what's interesting about these three people and their careers is that they're all relevant, even today. They're all still working. They're all part of big productions. However, we still know them best for their earlier roles. It doesn't mean they've gone downhill over the years. It's just that they were part of something special back in the 70s and 80s. The films I mentioned are all very known in pop culture, admired by a lot of people, and a big part of the film's success is because of their participation. Let's talk about Ralph Bellamy. We gotta go way back into the 40s. Um, one of the biggest roles that he ever had was in a comedy called His Girl Friday, where he plays Bruce Baldwin. And one of the last roles that he did was in Pretty Woman, where he played James Morse. And then Don Amici, um, other than this film, I would say the best role that he ever had was in Cocoon, where he plays Art Selwyn. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. I also want to give an honorable mention to Paul Gleason, who plays Clarence Beeks in this film. I'm sure all of us know him best as Richard Vernon, the assistant principal in The Breakfast Club. Heroes and Villains Now, Lewis and Billy Ray aren't necessarily bad people, but they're not good people either. At first, Lewis is just a wealthy guy. He plays up his heroism when he gets Billy Ray arrested. He doesn't treat his servant Coleman like dirt, but he believes giving him his dessert is a kind gesture. And Billy Ray's biggest flaw is that he's a liar. He pretends to be a disabled veteran to get money. He gives fake karate advice while he's in jail. But it's almost as if the Dukes did them a favor in switching their lives, because they both grow as a result. Lewis is taken in by Ophelia, and at first he kind of looks down because of her job as a prostitute, but he ends up being very thankful for her help and really comes to like her for the, the help that she's giving him. And of course, you're going to have sympathy for Lewis. His anger towards Billy Ray is misdirected, but it's sad to see someone have everything taken away from them for reasons completely out of their control. Now, when Billy Ray has his first house party, it's all fun and games, but then he soon becomes very, very responsible. Now he realizes these aren't really his friends, they're just moochers, and he's very protective of all his property in his house, and so he gets rid of them. For the first time in his life, he's been given an opportunity. He realizes he has an opportunity and he doesn't want to mess it up. So that causes the change in his behavior. And not only that, Billy Ray is just entertaining. In every single scene, when he talks to the Dukes, when he gives his financial advice, when he dresses up as an exchange student from Cameroon. And keep this in mind, this was Eddie Murphy's second film ever. And he came in strong. He turned a good character into a great character. Now on the other side, we have our villains. We have Randolph and Mortimer Duke. And when we think of awful rich white dudes, this is what we have in mind. Here's everything that's wrong with them. They're racist. They're cheapskates. They ruin a man's life for $1. And as wealthy as they already are, they try to steal a crop report so they can make even more money. Money they don't need. Why is it not enough? The audience has no problem disliking these men because they know people like this in real life. 
CEOs and politicians that have way too much power and influence over other people. You know, you could put Martin Shkreli, aka Farmer Bro, and Casey Anthony in place of Winthorpe and Valentine, and we'd be rooting for them in this story. Well, maybe not, but my point is that we have a lot of unforgivable people in this world, but Ralph and Mortimer Duke take the cake. I'll talk about Ophelia and Coleman briefly. You know, it's clear that men made trading places because they believed it was a good idea to have Ophelia go topless twice, even though it wasn't necessary. Other than that, she's very smart and kind. She is business-minded and has a clear plan of getting out of sex work for good. And even though she considers her relationship with Lewis as a business transaction, she ultimately comes to fall in love with him, and it never feels like she loves him for his money. And Colvin is just a good guy. He has this amicable relationship with Billy Ray, and he has some interesting reactions. Nothing over the top. He secretly drinks alcohol during Billy Ray's house party, and he seems annoyed by Lewis in the beginning of the film. And that was something I liked about this movie. You have all these servants, for lack of a better term, and they have to take care of all their employer's needs without complaint. But you can tell they sort of despise them. They have these hilarious reactions. It's either subtle or sarcastic, but Lewis and the Dukes are too oblivious to recognize it. So what happened to you, man? I found the perfect person that would be asked this question. And it has to do with this man's career prior to trading places, not after it. I'm talking about Don Amici. I found this very fascinating. They were looking for an actor to play one of the Duke brothers, and John Landis considered Don. However, people were telling him he was dead. Yeah. He didn't have an acting credit for the past two years. He had no representation. His royalties were being sent to his son in Arizona. So everyone assumed that because he wasn't working nor collecting a check that he was dead. And then upon hearing this, there was a secretary at Paramount. She corrected this. She's like, no, no, no. Don Amici, he's still alive. I just saw him in Santa Monica the other day. So Landis, he finds his number through a directory, is able to reach him and invites him to read for Mortimer Duke. And then John Landis basically asks him the question, so what happened to you, man? He says, and this isn't verbatim, he says, hey, Don, you haven't done a major movie in 14 years. You've done some bit parts here and there. Why is that? Why haven't you worked after all these years? And Don simply says, well, nobody called. That was it. Either Hollywood wasn't making films with septuagenarian characters, or they just didn't have him in mind. Also, Don was financially independent at that point. He wasn't hurting for money and didn't have to push hard. He didn't have to fight to try to get an acting gig. He was fine with the way things were. But after doing Trading Places, Don Amici had a resurgence in his career. I mentioned Cocoon earlier. It came out about two years after Trading Places, and he won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, and he continued to act until his death in 1993. He had quite the career. Now let's get into the soundtrack. I'm only going to focus on three songs that they play at different times in this film. In the beginning and ending credits for the film, they play the Overture to the Marriage of Figaro by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, not Rachmaninoff like they say in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Something I read when I was doing my research on trading places, 
the story wasn't inspired by these other previous stories, but they were reminiscent of stories like it. So The Marriage of Figaro, part of the storyline is about Figaro taking revenge on his count. He finds out that he's plotting a scheme and he's going to try to find a way to expose it. And then there's other stories. I'll mention this right now. There are other stories that kind of take on this narrative of having a rich person take the place of a poor person. So you've got uh, Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper. I think I heard about Pygmalion, Hoi Polloi. There are a couple of others. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that it was sort of appropriate to have this song from The Marriage of Figaro play in this film. It kind of sets the tone for where this whole universe, this whole setting's taking place. And it is a nod to the, the storyline. One of the other songs that's in this film, it's called Do You Want a Funk? F-U-N-K by the disco queen, Sylvester. And something was interesting. I totally blanked out on this scene. I forgot that this scene existed and it's where Billy Ray is inviting all his friends over to have this house party. And they're having this song play as all the dancing and all the conflict that Billy Ray has with everybody else that's taking place. But it's a catchy song. I mean, there's nothing else I really need to say about it. It's just, I don't know why I didn't remember this before because I just really like that song. It should have stood out to me more than it had before, but here we are. The other song I want to mention is the Zeta Kai Serenade. You have the scene where you have these four guys in the athletic club and they sing a cappella to these their four girlfriends that are sitting at a table after a game of squash or whatever they're playing. And I remember this scene standing out because I really liked the song they were singing. It was so sweet and I liked how they accompanied each other real, real well. I mean, I've been serenaded by a glee club before. Like I wasn't the only one, there was a group of us, but I have been serenaded to by a glee club. I don't care what they're singing about, just hearing the musicality of it. It sweeps us off our feet. And so that's the kind of feeling I got when I heard them perform this song. But then I started thinking about the lyrics. And I'm the kind of person that doesn't pay attention to the lyrics to a song. I'm more focused on the melody and the rhythm. But something I was noticing after a while was that when they're singing the song, they're giving out the names of these women. And they cut the camera to each different woman there at the table. And then I'm realizing this isn't their names. Like, that's Penelope, and they're calling her Muffy? Something's wrong. They're not singing about these girls. It was implied that they were, but then I realized I need to check out the lyrics. i got to figure out what they're actually singing about. So I looked it up, and I have them right here in front of me. Okay, it goes like this. Zeta Kai, Zeta Kai, Zeta Kai, my friend. Neath the elms we sing our tones, we're brothers to the end. Muffy in the bathroom stall, Margaret by the lake, Susan down in Whitley Hall, Constance on the make. Constance Fry, Constance Fry, anytime you call. Constance would fulfill your needs winter, spring, or fall. Now, first, when I was looking at the lyrics, I was thinking, okay, it's Zeta Kai. This is kind of like their theme song, their anthem from their old fraternity. That's fine. But then I'm like, who are Muffy, Margaret, Susan, and Constance? And what exactly were they doing at these locations? What's the importance of it? And then it just clicked. Are these guys singing about these women giving them BJs? Are they calling Constance a slut? Oh my word. Constance would fulfill your needs winter, spring, or fall. 
I'm so glad they gave her a break in the summertime. My goodness. That's problematic. And I'm pretty sure those girls at the tables, they know this song, and I think they're just smiling because they're... They don't care that it's about women giving BJs to guys. I don't know, but um, I found that very funny once I actually paid attention to what they were singing about. And this goes to show you that I need to pay more attention to music lyrics. Best scene, worst scene. The best scene, it's more like a sequence of scenes. This is everything that takes place at the commodities exchange. We figure out at the end of it that the dudes go bankrupt and Lewis and Billy Ray get super rich. But in the several times that I have watched this film, I had no idea what they were doing. I did some research, and I have a dumbed-down explanation of what was going on. And I don't think I need to explain this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Here's what happens. The Dukes got a fake report saying that there would be a shortage of orange crops. That's why they decide to buy up all the futures of frozen concentrated orange juice. The fact that the writers picked OJ as the commodity is hilarious. Anyway... Randolph and Mortimer believe that once the report comes out, then there's going to be a huge demand for orange juice, and the brothers can then basically name their price when they sell it, making a huge profit. Well, the truth is that there is no shortage, the cost of orange juice plummets, and the Dukes lose over $300 million because they overpaid for OJ. At the same time, Lewis and Billy Ray perform a, a short sell, which means they borrow futures of orange juice to sell at a given price, Preferably a high price, but they promise that they have to buy back the same amount of futures, hopefully at a lower price, in order to pay back their, their loan. They make a huge profit as a result, and that's your economics lesson for the day. Now let me get back to the scene here in this whole sequence. This is my favorite because they did a good job of showing how chaotic this process is. We don't understand the specifics of what they're doing, but we get the gist of it. They film this on location at the World Trade Center. You have the traders dealing with ulcers and other ailments, people shouting over each other and crowding each other as they try to buy and sell. And then you have the Duke brothers up in, I guess they're like the box seats up high, and they're just looking over and down on the little people, not knowing that they're about to get played. There's chaos, but there's also a clear picture of the Dukes meeting their demise. And the best part of this is when the official orange crop report comes out, you have Lewis and Billy Ray buying back orange juice as part of their short sell. And Eddie Murphy admits that he had no idea what was going on in the scene and how he should act. So he makes it up. And so you see all these men waving their hands and paper slips and they're shouting and they're on phones and they're trying to sell their shares. And Lewis is furiously writing down these purchases. Emotionally, he's on the same level as everybody else. But Billy Ray is so casual. You see him happily looking around and he's pointing one by one and scribbling notes down. You can just see him mouth, bye. Bye. Whatever he's doing is just so entertaining. I know it doesn't fit, but there's a lot of stuff in this film that doesn't fit. But it's, it's all about the adventure and we're here for it. Now for the worst scene. Again, it's a sequence. It's when the heist takes place and they're trying to steal the crop report from Clarence Beeks. First of all, these guys are really bad at disguises. You have Ophelia pretending to be Swedish, but her whole outfit reads Austrian-German. And then you have Lewis in blackface and... <sighs> you know, to be honest, his exchanges with Billy Ray here are hilarious. 
I wish I could do this more in real life, but I just want to go, but officially, I can't approve of the blackface. And I get that they're not experts at scheming other people, even though you have Billy Ray, who's probably the best among them, and he's trying to help them out in the situation. But even with his help, they just got lucky. They went out not because of their skill, but because of luck. For some reason, Beeks didn't recognize any of them initially, even though he's had interactions with most of them before. So he doesn't catch on to what they're doing at first. And the only reason they were able to steal a report from Beeks is because a gorilla intervened. Gorilla knocked him unconscious. In addition, you have a bunch of idiots on this train, like Jim Belushi's character who dresses up like a gorilla. And then you have former Senator Al Franken and uh, a guy named Tom Davis as the drunk baggage handlers. Although upon another watch, I realize they're not that bad. But the sequence was a mess, and John Landis acknowledged that this is all absurd. There's blackface and Swedish accents and horny gorillas, but if the audience is laughing, then it makes it all okay. And that's pretty much what happened. Best line, worst line. Of course, one of the best lines is Merry New Year, and it's uh, part of it's because of the delivery of Eddie Murphy, but it also sounds like you could say that in the new year. I did that. I do that every year, especially with my brother. I mean, Happy New Year's a way to go, but I, I love it more to just say Merry New Year. Some other lines that I really do like, um, when Billy Ray is going into his first day at work and he's not sure what to do, he's got Coleman there and he just says, just be yourself, sir. Whatever happens, they can't take that away from you. Very meaningful line. That's why I liked it. This one made me laugh a lot. I never understood it at first, but now I do. Mortimer and Randolph are signing checks, and Mortimer says, we seem to be paying some of our employees an awful lot of money. And then Lewis says, can't get around the old minimum wage, Mortimer. And it made me laugh because now I'm in a job where it's essential that I know about wage and labor laws. And for someone to think that minimum wage is way too much to pay somebody is kind of ridiculous. And think about this. I was looking at the minimum wage back in like the 1980s. It was somewhere around $3. And I don't think they were joking. I think both Mortimer and Lewis were serious that Mortimer really thinks they're overpaying people. If he could get away with paying people less, he would. That's just that's just really scummy. Now for the worst line. Let's put aside all the times people say the word Negro or the N-word. Um, let's put aside uh, Billy Ray saying the F-word. And I'm not talking about the F-bomb. I'm talking about a homosexual slur. Those are problematic. You can debate whether it was necessary or not to say those things. But this, I believe, is the worst line. Not because it's just a terrible line that doesn't fit. It's all in how it was presented. You have one of the girls from the athletic club, one of the girlfriends. She's in the middle of a joke and she says the punchline like this. And she stepped on the ball. That's what I hate about it is her delivery because it's one of the whitest things I have ever heard. And I can't imagine... Do people really talk like that? I don't know, but it's silly if someone actually does. But I wanna, I wanna talk more about this line because there's some important things about this. First of all, this is a good 
tool to use as a writer when you're writing a script. You can start a scene with having someone in the middle of a conversation, in medias res. You don't have to go through the whole thing. You can just have someone in the middle of a conversation giving a punchline. It's totally acceptable. And the other thing that's going on with this line in the scene is that you have these four couples that are having a really good time. They're laughing, they're enjoying this joke that was just being said, and then it all changes once Lewis enters the room and everybody gets very cold very quickly. Now, something I read about this uh, specific punchline is that it was sort of in reference to a movie called Anti-Mame. There's a scene where you have this woman who kind of takes everybody's attention uh, away and has it put onto her and she wants to tell this story and she's trying to make everybody believe like this is going to be the most incredible story, most ridiculous story you've ever heard. So she's talking about playing in a ping pong match. She's about to raise her paddle to do like an overhead shot and she realizes that she stepped on the ping pong ball and crushes it. And then they don't have another ping pong ball and so they have to forfeit the whole game. After she tells the story, she's waiting for a response. She's waiting for everybody in that room to just burst out in laughter and that doesn't happen. She's really expecting this to be one of the best stories ever and everybody is kind of looking at her like, cool story, bro. But it makes me wonder what they had in mind for this scene when she gives the punchline. Is she saying the exact same story and everybody is laughing just to be polite to her? Is the joke completely different, but it's the same punchline and it's actually really hilarious? Or maybe even she's telling a story and somebody that they know in their circle does something embarrassing by stepping on a ball and people are laughing at this other person's expense. I don't know. Unbelievable. True facts about trading places. I'm going to talk a lot here about the casting because it seemed like this was the most challenging part of making this film. You have the studio, Paramount Pictures, and they didn't like a lot of John Landis's casting choices. Let me go through the list. They didn't like Dan Aykroyd because historically his films were more successful if he partnered with someone else. Like in Blues Brothers, he was joined at the hip with John Belushi. When he would do a movie as a, a solo player, they were financial bombs. They did terribly. So they didn't think he'd be able to carry this film here. Paramount didn't like Jamie Lee Curtis because they believed she was just a scream queen. Leading up to this, she was mainly known for her work in horror films, and the studio didn't believe she could transition to more challenging roles. They didn't like Don Amici because he was asking to be paid a fair wage. And in retaliation, they dropped the budget of the film, they lowered the budget because they thought it wasn't right for Don Amici to ask for more money. And to be fair, John Landis was reluctant to go along with some of... They wanted to cast Eddie Murphy as Billy Ray, but he was very new to the scene. John Landis never watched Saturday Night Live. Uh, the only other movie that had come out that Eddie Murphy was starring in was 48 Hours. He hadn't seen that either. But he did his research. He did have a meeting with Eddie Murphy. And ultimately, he agreed to bring him on board. So even though you have all these disputes with the casting, it all paid off. Trading Places was the fourth highest grossing film of 1983 behind Flashdance, Terms of Endearment, and Return of the Jedi. And all four of these actors that I mentioned just went into a higher level of stardom. Definitely career-defining roles. Now before Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy were on board, 
I believe it was Paramount that wanted to cast Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor in the roles of Louis Winthorpe and Billy Ray Valentine. However, Richard Pryor got severely injured and was not available to do the film. How did he get injured? He was freebasing cocaine and set himself on fire. And I don't know if you guys remember the last episode I did, it was Scrooge versus How the Grinch Stole Christmas. There was a scene in Scrooge where um, Frank Cross, he's getting a little paranoid. He thinks he sees someone in the restaurant on fire. And so he takes this big bucket of water and pours it on him to extinguish the fire. He was never on fire in the first place. But after he does that, he says to the, the waiter, I'm sorry, I thought you were Richard Pryor. That's what he was referencing. He was also making mention of Richard Pryor setting himself on fire. So this was probably a really big story back in the early 80s. Here's another interesting uh, anecdote that I found out about this. Don Amici, when he was given the script to Trading Places, he read through it and noticed that at the very end, he had to say the F word. I'm not talking about the racial slur. I'm talking about F-U-C-K. And he was very, very reluctant to do it. He almost refused to not do the movie if he had to say it. And John Landis ultimately convinced them that he had to do it just, he only had to say it this one time. It was very important for that character to say it. So when it came to the day where they had to shoot the scene, he had to say that line, he got the entire production team all together and he told them all, I'm saying this one time. I'm saying, I'm doing the scene only once and don't mess it up because we're not going to be doing it again. So that's what happened. He only had to say that word the one time. So that in itself is very interesting, but here's what's more interesting. Earlier in the film, Don Amici says the N-word. And with everything that I've read, nobody had an issue with that. Why is that? <laughs> he had such a problem with saying the F-word, but not the N-word? What is wrong with you people? Um, I was reading somebody's comments, and I think in the DVD, they said in the commentary he also had an issue with saying that. I Unfortunately, I don't have a copy of the DVD. I should have it in my collection, so I can't verify this information. But it is odd that in, in oral histories of trading places, in behind-the-scenes interviews, no one makes mention of the N-word being a problem. It was all about him saying this F-bomb. Very crazy. The original title of the script was Black or White, and you probably know what that's referring to. I'm kind of glad they changed the title of it once John Landis got his hands on it, because the trading places was a bit more appropriate for what was going to go on in the story. In Ophelia's apartment, there is a movie poster, and the title of the film is called See You Next Wednesday. That's a bit of an Easter egg. Um... What I found out is that See You Next Wednesday is a line from the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. And at one point, John Landis wanted to make a movie called See You Next Wednesday. It never got off the ground, but every other production that he has done, he puts in a fake movie poster with the title. Even in his uh, music video thriller that he did for Michael Jackson, somewhere in there, there's also a movie poster for See You Next Wednesday. So... That's a little thread that he put, a little Easter egg he threw into all of his productions. At the Weston Hotel in Philadelphia, there is a fine dining establishment. It's called Winthorpe and Valentine, as in Louis Winthorpe and Billy Ray Valentine. At the 37th Baptist, 
the British Academy of Film Awards, um, Denholm Elliott, who played Coleman, and Jamie Lee Curtis, who played Ophelia, they won Best Supporting Actor and Supporting Actress, respectfully. Here's my last true fact. In 2010, Congress passed the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. The law is over 800 pages long, but I just want to focus on one particular section, and that is section 746. Basically, before 2010, it was okay to base trades based on information that was obtained before it goes public. In trading places, the Duke brothers paid someone to get that report on orange juice early so they could game the system and make a lot of money. That was legal. In section 746 of the Dodd-Frank Act, it makes a provision that prevents any person from obtaining any crop information before the rest of the public. The information needs to be disseminated fairly. The provision is otherwise known as the Eddie Murphy Rule. I lied to you, I had a second economics lesson for the day. That was it. Suspend your disbelief. Okay, of course the highest. You can suspend your belief on all of it. There's a lot of things that just don't make sense in it. I don't know why Beeks was sharing a cabin with several other people. He should have had his own private cabin. He shouldn't have uh, removed the handcuff off of the suitcase. I don't know why he had it left vulnerable so someone could steal it. And then I don't know why he didn't have the ability to take off the gorilla mask. Because all I saw was them taping his face, but I didn't see anything securing the gorilla mask to the rest of his suit. So yeah, all of that, take it with a grain of salt. But here's some other things that I noticed. Lewis is selling a watch called the Rochefoucauld. I think I'm saying that right. It's a very expensive sport watch, and he says that it tells time simultaneously in six different cities. And those are Monte Carlo, Beverly Hills, London, Paris, Rome, and Stadt. It's, it's, he's implying that all of them are in very different time zones. In reality, four of these cities are all in the same time zone. London and Beverly Hills are the exceptions, but the other four European cities, they all are in the same time. Billy Ray Valentine breaks the fourth wall twice in this film. Once when he's getting rested and pulled into a, a cop car. And then the other time is when the Dukes are trying to explain what commodities are. And in one way, it doesn't make sense for him to do that. No one else is breaking the fourth wall. But it is incredibly funny when he does it. Especially the second time because the Dukes are trying to tell them what commodities are. So they're saying it includes such things as coffees, like what you had for breakfast. Your orange juice. And pork bellies, like what you would find in bacon like what you would find in a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. And when he looks at the audience, we kind of get it too. He's looking at us to say, hey, don't you guys think that this is absolutely ridiculous that they're trying to explain bacon to me? So it kind of works, but there's really no need to break the fourth wall. One other thing that I found ridiculous is that when they're at the um, commodities exchange at the World Trade Center, once the bell rings, you have all these people coming out of bathroom stalls and directly exiting without washing their hands. That's very strange to me. I get what they're trying to do. Everybody is ready to go. It's a huge event. This is kind of like a ceremonial thing that once that bell rings, everybody's got to go. Still disgusting. Now, could they do a remake of Trading Places or a sequel to it? I think they could do either one. First sequel, I mean, of course, Randolph and Mortimer Duke, they are long gone. I think you could have a very good antagonist with Todd, who
who is Lewis's rival in Trading Places and who ends up courting Penelope after she breaks up with Lewis. I'm sure there's a very good way for Todd and his very hairy forearms to come up with a plan to take revenge on Lewis Winthorpe for what he did to the Dukes. I don't know what that is, but I'm sure we could figure something out. They could also do a, a remake of this because that idea of greed and having this uh, wealth inequality amongst people, that's still relevant today. However, I don't know if that type of movie could be made. One of the writers a few years ago said in an interview that it would be nearly impossible to make a story like that again because the people in power are the ones that are being made fun of in trading places. The Hollywood executives, the super wealthy, do not like to be made fun of. And so they wouldn't allow for this to happen. The only way they were able to get trading places made, and I'm trying to figure out how exactly they said it, it was a contemporary movie. However, they tried to make it seem like they weren't directly making fun of people at that time. There was a lot of homage being paid to people of the 30s and 40s. Like, it was kind of a throwback in a way of the storytelling that was in the 30s and 40s, even though it was taking place in the 80s. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but somehow they were able to get away with it before, but now executives don't want to take that chance now, and they don't want to have a story where rich people get their downfall. Although I know audiences would love a story like that, because that's what we're dealing with now. We have been dealing with this for who knows how many decades, and... It is very satisfying to see poor people kind of move up. It's very satisfying to see rich people get knocked off of their high horse and in a position where they can no longer take advantage of people. And so maybe one day you're going to have a studio who's willing to take a chance. And I think the only way they will want to make it is knowing that they're going to make a lot of money off of it. Even though it's attack on their lifestyle and the choices that they make, they're still going to be able to laugh their way to the bank. That's all I have for my review of Trading Places. You can reach me at semifieldwriter at gmail.com. My website is semifieldwriter.com. I have Twitch and Instagram at semifieldwriter. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a fabulous 2021. I'll be back with a personal story in a couple of weeks. Until then, take care. <laughs>